because I think it's the practice of being self-reflective and of what's called cultural metacognition, which is about being aware of our own biases, our own assumptions about other people's cultures and our own, and recognizing that our thoughts may be inflected of culture. And I think the next level is not feeling unduly guilty about those ideas that come up. Welcome to the Leadership Junkies podcast brought to you by Cartavera, the leadership development ecosystem that helps you grow your people, grow your business, and grow your life. We're also excited to announce that we're now part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, a network of podcasts that cover a wide range of topics, everything from business to leadership to history to relationships. We're so excited about this opportunity to expand our reach and our impact. Today, we have an incredible guest, Dr. Shannon Prince is with us, and the title of the program is Be a World Crafter, Strategies and Mindsets for Crafting Cultures of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. We're gonna talk about the topic of the day, in particular, a unique twist, and Dr. Prince is gonna talk about how important it is to not only focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion, but building cultures of anti-racism. She's gonna talk about the ways that we can basically identify the existence of systemic issues within our culture and our organizations based upon tracking things like metrics and tracking the disparities and impact. We're gonna talk about some new topics. We're gonna talk about certainly the role of unconscious biases, but what Dr. Prince talks about is this idea of bias interruption. So we can be aware that the biases are coming up and make some different choices in how we proceed. She's gonna talk about changing our practices in order to increase our diversity, equity, inclusion. And she's gonna talk about a new topic called cultural metacognition, which is becoming more aware of our biases and assumptions so they can have less impact in the way we make decisions. It's going to be a rich conversation about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Welcome to the Leadership Junkies podcast, where we explore leadership, business, and personal growth to help you grow your business and live a richer life. We're your hosts, Jeff Dishwitz and Craig Matthews. We believe that leaders have to put their people first. And if you don't have time to grow your people, then you're not leading. Get ready for conversations that will challenge your thinking and help you transform your leadership and your business. Welcome to your bigger business and bigger life. We are so excited to be back here because we're going to be a talk. We're going to be talking about a topic today that is the it's the center of everything these days. Uh, we're going to be talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and more specifically, the idea of what does it look like to create an anti-racist culture in an organization. We have with us today Dr. Shannon Prince. Uh, she's got a fascinating background. She's an attorney, legal commentator, speaker. She got her doctorate in African and African-American studies and her master's in English from Harvard University wow. Graduate School of Arts and Sciences. Her law degree is from Yale Law School. She's got a bachelor's degree magna cum. <laughs> she's got a bachelor's degree magna cum laude from Dartmouth. Um, this is, I want you to hear some of these things she's involved in and been involved in. Uh, she drafted the best practices language on policing policies for the National Initiative for Building Community Trust and Justice. She represented the plaintiffs in CCJEF versus REL, a high-profile landmark education ad adequacy lawsuit. And right now, she's representing the Cherokee Nation 
in their lawsuit against pharmaceutical distributors and pharmacies for their role in the opioid crisis that the tribe wow. is suffering in. She's a member of firms diverse, uh, for Diversity Council, and she's legal counsel on Legal Diversity Pathfinders. The bottom line is, uh, Shannon is in the middle of everything diversity, equity, inclusion, and she's got a book coming out soon called Tactics for Racial Justice. So welcome, Shannon. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so humbled to be here. Oh, glad to have you. So Shannon, give us a little bit of the backstory that goes beyond that intro. Sure. So I am a woman of color and I attended kindergarten through the 12th grade at a predominantly white private college preparatory school. And then, as you said, for my studies in college and my postgraduate studies, I went to these schools that continue to be predominantly white spaces. Now I'm in one of the whitest professions, the law profession, and I practice what's called big law, very high stakes litigation that is even whiter than some of the other practice areas. And so I've always had to navigate being the only one in the room in most circumstances. And I'm very passionate about trying to figure out how to not to be the only one in the room, how to get more people of color into places of privilege and into anywhere where we're absent and how to make those places fairer, how to make sure that people really are judged, as Martin Luther King said, on the content of their character and not kept out or kept down because of the color of their skin. Hmm. Oh, Shannon, um, obviously the last, I guess, uh, roughly 15 to 18 months, this is, I would argue, the hottest topic in the country. Uh, and hot is a good word because there's a lot of heat with it. There's a lot of heat in the conversations. Let's start with what are you seeing going on right now, at least with organizations around just what you said, getting more people of difference in the room? Well, I'm seeing a lot of talk and I'm seeing some, but not enough action. That we've seen a number of corporations make declarations that they're going to be more diverse, equitable, and inclusive. We aren't so much seeing the needle move in terms of people of color in senior leadership roles, people of color who hold board seats, people of color who get venture capital in proportion or anywhere near it to their proportion of the population. And so I think people know now that racism is an issue. I think that people are fairly convinced that it's bad, but I think that people don't know what to do. And so what I hope to work with people on is the answer to the question, now what? <laughs> so Shannon, uh, to that point, I had this conversation with uh, a friend of mine last week, uh, pretty in-depth actually, very healthy conversation. And we were talking about why, why we're personally not seeing the needle move more. Mm -hmm. And he made the comment, he said, it seems like everybody pretty much agrees that system, uh, systematic racism is, racism is real. And I said, I don't think that's true at all. I, I think there's a large percentage of the population in the U.S. that still does not accept that there is such a thing as systemic racism. And I'm curious about your thoughts on that. And also, if that's true, how does that impact moving forward? So I think that sometimes people don't believe systemic racism is real because they feel that 
if racism is really a structuring force in society, then society must just have a lot of bad people in it. And mm. I'm not bad. My family's not bad. My neighbors aren't bad. Who are all these villains and secret Klansmen who are causing there to be systemic racism? An example that I give um, is that when I first started my job at my law firm, which is a wonderful place, I am uh, currently the only person, the only lawyer of color in my office. There are other lawyers of color in the firm, but I'm the only one in my office. And how many people are there? And my office is about 30 people and our firm is about uh, 250 people. Gotcha. And so uh, 30 attorneys in my office. And so that first week, someone greeted me so warmly. They said, Shannon, so nice to meet you. So great to have you. Whose secretary are you? Now, that person was not being malicious. That person didn't wake up in the morning and say, how can I be racist today? It was just unconscious. But when those unconscious factors get aggregated, you have systemic racism. So how that looks in practice is we know that people of color, Asian Americans, Hispanic Americans, Native Americans, and African Americans who are equally situated to white people socioeconomically are less likely to get mortgage loans than white people are. Mm. And it's not necessarily that a white loan officer is looking at that person and saying, I'm just going to be unfair because I'm evil. It's that they make unconscious assumptions. Just as that person assumed I was a secretary, they just somehow assume, hmm, I don't think this person can be responsible with that loan. And it happens enough that we can see a whole demographic disparity in who gets loans and who doesn't at the same economic level. And so the way we counter that is not just by focusing on attitudes, but by using metrics. We have to track, um, you know, disparities just the way we track anything else in an organization or a business. So in a bank, you would track who the race of the loan officer, the race of the loan applicants, the credit scores of the loan applicants, whether they got the loan, whether they didn't. And then we can see, you know, Tom gave loans to white people who had this credit score, but not to Asian people who had the same or higher credit score. He needs some coaching. There's something going on here. And so it's not just about intentions. It's about practices. Wow. So, so Shannon, you bring up something really interesting, uh, and I'm curious, just give everybody listening, how long ago was that conversation where someone assumed you were a secretary? That was 2018. So, wow. we're, so we're talking about three, less than three years ago. And right. sometimes people will say, well, that's how it used to be, mm-hmm. right? Um, so I'm curious also in that interchange, and there's probably no way to know, but do you feel like that was um, an unconscious bias? based upon your color or was there some intersectionality around you being a a woman of color? It was definitely intersectionality. And this is one reason I believe that when uh, the George Floyd murder happened in the wake of that, some of us at the firm were having discussions about how we could build on the social justice legacy that we already have and Part of what came out of that was that the one of the heads of the firm, who is a white woman, decided to just sit down with every single black associate and talk to us about our experiences. And when I told her what had happened to me, she said, you know, I used to get mistaken for a secretary, too, but that was 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. So we can see how race intersects with gender, where 
we can't just say things have progressed for women. Things have progressed for white women where now they are uh, at a point where being mistaken for the secretary was something that happened a generation ago. But when race intersects with gender, as a woman of Hmm. color, I was still seen as a secretary in this current moment. Wow. Have you seen any changes since that point? You know, within the organization that you're in now, are, are you being perceived and actually from a sense of belonging part of the team? I am. And I think that I always felt that sense of belonging in the, Mm -hmm. even, you know, in that context, because I knew it was just unintentional. When we talk about implicit bias, sometimes people think that we're trying to be thought police, but actually it's about giving someone the benefit of the doubt. Mm -hmm. I knew that person hadn't tried to hurt me and and he was trying to make me feel included in his way, believe it or not. He was just wrong because he stereotyped me. But one thing that came out of those conversations that we had uh, with this woman who was one of the leaders of the firm is that she brought in people to do anti-bias training. And we talked about stereotypes. And this is where you have to move from intent to action. It's not enough to say, put on the website, we are the kind of institution where we believe that everyone is equal. We're the kind of institution that when a lawyer says this is what happens to me, I'm not the only person this has happened to at the firm, then leadership takes a stand and says, okay, this is the action we're going to take. We're going to bring in an expert to train us on stereotypes. Hmm. So, Shannon, I, I guess I'll just give my opinion and then see what your thoughts are. It seems to me that you know, just a statement is pretty meaningless. I mean, frankly, it's pretty mean. It just works. And then some organizations do training, but it stopped. It's sort of this one and done. Well, we did our training. Um, it seems to me that's not enough. Uh, so yeah. talk about what, I mean, I maybe you don't have the whole plan, but what do organizations need to, how do they need to be thinking to take this from, we've got a good intention to we're going to turn it into different actions? Sure. So let's talk about, two prongs, uh, to have a two prong response to that question. The first is on training. American Psychological Association has said that not all anti-bias training is created equal. When you want it to work, it has to be more than a one-off. You have to do it repeatedly. You have to focus on both awareness and skills building, and you have to complement it with other diversity initiatives. And so awareness means getting people to be aware of their cultural assumptions, of their biases, of their values. Skills build, skill building means training people to monitor their actions, how to respond to difference, how to identify and overcome interracial communication barriers. And of course, because organizations aren't static, you're always bringing new people in, you have to repeat this training, not just Um, you know, not just have multiple trainings for the people who are there, but also have ongoing trainings for the people you're bringing in. But training is the easiest piece. And as the American Psychological Association said, training does not work in the absence of other diversity initiatives. Hmm. And one of the most important is creating SMART goals for diversity, equity, and inclusion. SMART is an acronym that stands for Specific, Measurable, Assignable, Realistic, and Time-Bound. And we can see in Estee Lauder an example of a company that created a SMART goal. They decided that they wanted every level of their organization 
to have Black people in proportion to Black people's segment of the population. Mm. So that's a specific goal. It refers to a race of people. It has a quantifiable level of diversity. So it's a measurable goal. It's assignable. You can delegate it to human resource officers, to managers, to diversity officers, to recruiters. It's realistic. They gave themselves um, a period of years to do this. They didn't say next month is going to happen. And uh, it's time related. They gave themselves a five-year deadline to put this in place. But in the first five months after committing to this plan, Estee Lauder had already doubled its rate of Black hiring. So when you have a SMART goal, that's when you actually move the needle. Hmm. So, so Shannon, uh, one topic that's come up in other guests, and also I know I've had this conversation with a number of folks, is there's that, I guess, decades-old phrase that we hire the best people. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there's organizations that push back against these initiatives saying, we still want to hire the best people. So what what's your, I guess, commentary or response to that question of, are we going to do diversity, equity, inclusion? Or are we going to hire the best people? And I know that's a trick question. <laughs> sure. So we have to recognize that who we consider to be the best people is colored, no pun intended, by things like race. So there is a phenomenon called affinity bias, which means that we tend to perceive the best people to be the people who have something in common with us. And often that means along race and gender lines. So a white man often considers unconsciously the best person to be another white man. Now, what we also know is that even when we have two resumes and one of them has a name that is identifiably black, like Jamal, and another one has a name that's identifiably or that is assumed to be white, like James, Jamal's resume is going to get less callbacks, even if his credentials are the same as James, because we perceive James to be the better applicant. We know that Black unemployment rate is always equivalent to that of white people at the next lowest educational tier. So Black people with PhDs are more equivalent to white people with masters in terms of unemployment. And then you can go down to people with masters versus people with bachelor's degrees, people with bachelor's degrees versus people with high school degrees. And ultimately you get to a white person with a conviction on his record is still seen as a better candidate than a black person who doesn't have a criminal record. We know that if you have two resumes, A woman's resume needs more years of experience on it to be considered equivalent to a man's resume. A person of color's resume needs more years of of experience on it. And even things that are considered credentials can actually hold you back if they're inflected with color. So when an Asian person has a resume and it says something like, I was president of the college Chinese Students Engineering Society, that's actually a dean. That makes wow. them less likely to get hired. If they pull that off their resume, then they become more likely to get hired. So they take this thing off that would suggest to you that they might be the best. But if it shows, if it's indicative of race, it can hold them back. And then I think that the most persuasive evidence is that diverse companies consistently are more profitable. Uh, banks that have diverse investments do better. We know uh, that 
companies like Jumba Juice that have diversified their personnel just saw record profits in the wake of that. And so if diversity meant we're picking less qualified people over more qualified white people, we would expect to see diverse companies do worse than non-diverse companies. What we actually, what the data actually suggests is that when we don't make efforts to be diverse and inclusive and equitable, then we unconsciously pick less qualified white people over more qualified people of color. And that's why those companies don't do as well as diverse companies do. Hmm. Now for, you know, since you're talking to Jeff and me, both white males, what's one of the key things that we can be doing that would help move this forward? We have a voice, you know, we, we, we try to understand where you're coming from, um, but we know that we have biases and, and so forth as well. Well, I think the wonderful thing about anti-racist techniques is that no matter what your background, you can perform them because they're about practices. Mm-hmm. And just like anyone can learn to hit a baseball, anyone can learn to hit the souffle, anyone can put anti-racist practices in place. And so, for example, one practice might be if you're the leader of an organization is deciding not to use photographs in the job application process. Hmm. The U.S. Army recently got rid of the use of photographs in their promotion process, and they found that when they did so, people of color and women were more likely to be promoted. You know, um, you can look at things such as who gets the richest opportunities in your organization. Because of affinity bias, people often give the opportunities that you really need for promotion to people who are like them. So if you look at a law firm, and I'm not talking about my law firm in this context, but just a generic law firm, the senior people are disproportionately likely to be white men. Getting promoted to partner depends on things like first chairing a deposition, arguing a motion in court. And white men are likely to say the person who's most qualified to do those really ambitious opportunities are junior white men. Hmm. But if you have a system in place that shows these are all the associates who are qualified for this role, and we're going to track who gets these rich opportunities. But we're also going to track who senior partners give opportunities to. Then you have metrics in place and policies. And so, you know, practices are something that you can put in place no matter what your racial background, no matter what your gender. Those are such good points. And and really looking at the statistics of what's happening inside the organization, I would Mm -hmm. imagine there's also a, a part of this that comes back to who we're hiring. Not just that we're hiring diversely, but even for any white people that we hire, we may be looking at how they get along with others, um, uh, people of color. And so how would somebody go about that to make sure that they have a good cultural fit, that they are also aligned with the values of, of diversity and inclusion and belonging? So I have the privilege of interviewing students who hope to have a job at my firm. And one thing I ask them is, you know, what do you plan to do to promote diversity, equity, and inclusion? Mm. And I expect people to have thought about that in the same way that they thought about other things that make you a great lawyer, because that's not icing on the cake. That's part of being a great lawyer. We're in the justice business. Yeah. 
racial justice matters. And from a business perspective, having the strongest law firm possible means that we have to be an equitable place. And so just as you ask about any other job skill, ask people about their investment in diversity, equity, and inclusion. How, how would you go about that? So if we're looking at from what your phrasing was their investment in what does that look like and what are we what are we searching for is it their friends is it how they've dealt with an issue in a prior company what what would we be looking for there so i think good answers are i mentor people from underserved communities i tutor people from underserved communities i do pro bono on social justice issues or even if someone hasn't had a past track record what are they going to do when they get to the firm? Are they going to be sure to recruit, um, go back to their law firm and recruit from the minority law student associations? You know, I just want to hear not necessarily a perfectly well-formed plan, but serious thoughtfulness that indicates a real commitment to the issue. I'm not okay. looking for um, their personal life. And so I'm not so much interested in do you have the proverbial black friend, because I think it's very important to distinguish systemic racial issues from interpersonal racial issues. What I'm looking for is what people are doing to make the organizations that they're a part of fair. Okay. So Shannon, let me ask you a follow-up question about that. Uh, we had at least one guest um, talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And he was saying that with when companies that he works with, when they say that the leaders say to him, what, you know, what do we need to do? He said, the first question I do ask them is how diverse is your life? Mm. Not whether you happen to have that random, that I've got a black friend, I've got a gay friend, all that. But is your life really rich with diversity on a day-to-day -day basis, not just at work, your person? Uh, and I've seen some other things talking about this perspective that you can't have a diverse organization if your life's not diverse. I'm curious about your thoughts on that. And I, I guess I want to say beyond just, I'm going to call it the token. So I think that it's a complex question. You can look, for example, at an organization that might be in Vermont or New Hampshire, where I remember when I went to Dartmouth, the population outside of Dartmouth was maybe 2% Black. New mm -hmm. Hampshire is the second whitest state in the union. Next door, Vermont is the whitest. And so I met people who had grown up in New Hampshire, who went to college, who didn't have diverse lives just because there was no diversity to be found. You know, they just, yeah. there were no white people, there were no non-white people to befriend. And so I'm not certain that you can't have a diverse organization unless you have a diverse life is just axiomatic. But I do think if you're in a place like New York City where there is diversity mm -hmm. and you don't have a diverse life, that does say something about you. And I think, though, that it can be chicken and egg. I think that sometimes it's tackling diversity um, at the systemic level that can lead to the person tackling diversity at the interpersonal level. I don't think you need to feel that you have to wait. I think that you should have diversity in your social life and it will make you a much more well-rounded and um, person who is invested in you know, the issues of your neighbor. I think that once police brutality, for example, is not something you read about on the news, but it's something that may affect your friend that you care about it more. But at the same time, I don't think people should feel that they have to wait until they have 
a certain friendship group before they start implementing these practices. They can do this right away and they can pursue them, you know, on parallel tracks. Mm-hmm. I think a little bit about traditional yoga practice and how the Hindu sages used to say, is it more important to begin with the asanas, with the poses and build the strength of the body and then move on to the spiritual philosophies? Do you have to build that physical strength before you can handle the spiritual part? Or is it only time to take on the physical rigors once you have the spiritual discipline? And I think that the fact that they never really came to a landing on that shows that these are all worthy things. We can do them in any order. The most important thing is just to get started and we can walk and chew gum and try both. Let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. If you enjoy the Leadership Junkies podcast and you want to grow your leadership, we have a new course for you called Become a Confident Leader. In this course, we will share some of the keys to becoming more confident in your leadership and also to become more impactful. Go to cartavera.com confident to find out more. See you on the inside. Imagine how fast we could solve the world's biggest problems if more SaaS startups would gain traction sooner. Welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. This podcast is dedicated to sharing experiences from B2B SaaS CEOs who are going above and beyond to deliver change that is noticed. You will hear their secrets and learn what is required to build a SaaS business that the world starts talking about and keeps talking about and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out. Welcome back. Let me check in with you on this, Shannon. I had a conversation probably three months ago with an organization here in Tampa, and I was talking to their diversity, equity, inclusion person. And I said, how's the group doing? Because I, you know, the group still, they said, it's not as diverse as we would like it. And they made the comment that they said, we're doing as much as we can to create the opportunities. And what I said was, I said, well, it seems that part of the challenge is you can do everything you want on this side, like on our side of the door, mm-hmm. but what are you doing to change who's coming to the door, mm-hmm. right? Because if the same people are coming to the door, changing what you do at the door doesn't have a huge impact. So does that make sense to you? And can you talk about that difference of inside the door versus who you're getting at the door? That makes so much sense. So let's think about recruitment. Sometimes we say, I need a new astrophysicist for the lab. And I posted to the National Association of Astrophysicists that this job is available. If people of color don't apply, that's not my fault. I did my part. (laughs) Well, you have to make an extra effort to go to the places where people are. So is there a Native American astrophysicist society? Did you post the job there? Sometimes we tell people, go out and tell your friends and the people you went to school with that this job is available. And we know that most jobs are never posted. Most people find jobs through your social networks. 
well, if you don't already have a diverse organization, because there's so much de facto segregation in American life, you're telling predominantly white people to go out and tell their friends and their, you know, the people they went to college with about a job opportunity is basically going to lead to them telling other white people about right. that job opportunity. So simply posting a job opportunity as opposed to just using the social network is already a step towards diversity and then posting it in places where diverse people are. You, know, you can go back to your alma mater and promote a job opportunity. But if your alma mater isn't very diverse, are you also promoting it at historically black colleges and universities, at Hispanic serving institutions, at tribal colleges and universities? When you go to um, a college that is predominantly white, are you going to the Middle Eastern and North African Law Students Association and pitching the job there? How do people get a foothold at your organization? If you have an in unpaid internship, then that's racially inflected, even though it doesn't seem like it at first. And the reason is we have a very dramatic wealth gap in our society. People of color are less likely to be able to take a period of time and not support themselves to pursue that internship. Even mm -hmm. students sometimes who are in college really need to earn money to buy books. Even high schoolers sometimes can have families that rely on them having some sort of job to contribute to the rent payment. When you offer a paid internship, then in a context in which there's a wealth gap, you get more diverse people in the door and also white people from all walks of life. Mm -hmm. You can look at what seems to be race neutral advertising of an opportunity. So for example, I get my alumni magazines from Dartmouth, Harvard and Yale. And in the back, they will have ads for private schools. They'll have ads for um, tutors, for people to help prepare you for the SAT, for wonderful programs uh, for students to take advantage of during the summer. It seems like a race neutral way to advertise. They're not saying we're going to put this advertisement in a magazine that's just for white people or something. <laughs> But the thing is, those schools are very underrepresented. Uh, minorities are very underrepresented at those schools. And so they aren't pitching to people of color in the proportion that we are in the population. They're pitching to a disproportionately white audience. If they were to put those um, ads in other places, they would find more people of color. Or to give another example, say you have a junior orchestra and you're looking for young people to perform it and take advantage of this wonderful opportunity. And you put that opportunity online and tell people to apply. Well, a lot of Native American children live in households that don't have access to the internet. Mm -hmm. A lot of people of color, as we've seen during the pandemic, don't have reliable internet access. And so those Native American kids aren't going to see that advertisement. In your mind, you are extending that opportunity to everyone, but lots of people disproportionately of color aren't accessing it. And so we have to be very intentional about who we invite through the door. And then another step is telling recruiters what you're looking for. Tell them, I want to see candidates of color. And then another step is contributing to who's equipped to walk through the door. So for example, sometimes people say, well, the reason the law firm isn't diverse is that there just aren't enough lawyers of color. And it's true that lawyers are disproportionately white, but that's not an excuse to just throw up your hands and say, so we can't be diverse, you know, too bad, so sad. 
a boy Schiller Flexer, I'm part of the Tribal Affairs Task Force. And one initiative that we are currently in the process of starting is a Tribal Affairs Task Force Scholars Program where we would like to have boy Schiller Flexner lawyers doing virtual career days with Native American students to tell them about being and becoming lawyers and road mapping for Native American students how to pursue this career path. We would like to pair boy Schiller Flexner lawyers with Native American college seniors who want to become lawyers so that the BSF mm -hmm. lawyers can be their personal law school application advisors. And then we'd like to create an externship that will allow Native American students to come and have an experience with practicing at the very highest levels, giving them a credential to put on their resume. And so for us, it's not enough to say we want more Native American lawyers. We want to say, how can we create more Native American lawyers? And any organization can do that. Wow. So Great Shannon, point. you've talked a couple of times and I want to highlight it about there is tons, I'm going, to, I'm going to use the word tons, of data that says the more diverse organizations are more profitable. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I wonder whether business owners hear that and don't believe it. <laughs> or I guess what's been your experience of, if, I'm a, if I own a business and I know that, if I believe that's true, I'm going to do that, maybe not even for the right reasons, I'm going to do it for the profit. What's getting, what do you see as getting in the core things getting in the way between that reality and what's really happening in our organizations? I think it's twofold. The first is that people don't always make choices that are in their own economic interests. If they did, we wouldn't have had whites only signs on businesses. People wouldn't have been turning away, you know, clients and patrons from large swaths of the population. And then another part is that we can know something is true in our head and not believe it in our hearts. We can feel that, you know, if I had, a, I can read that article that says diverse organizations are more profitable. But then when that woman walks in the door and is applying for a job as a lawyer or a ballerina or a physician or an engineer, and her hair is in dreadlocks, in my mind, I might say, mm, I, I really don't think that's the person who's going to get me the results I want. I just can't make myself believe it. That's not what a lawyer or an engineer or an investment banker looks like to me. How much of that do you think, Shannon? You know, a lot of this we've talked about, and you said at the beginning, this isn't, it's typically not about um, hateful people. It's about unconscious biases of all sorts, confirmation bias, implicit bias, affinity bias, all these biases. And I wonder sometimes someone looks at that issue, you, someone comes in with dreadlocks and they label it as, I don't think they're a good fit because I don't consider that to be professional. Some sort of label like that saying that's a logical thing. It's not a bias thing. Mm -hmm. I guess what's our path to getting past that? Well, one thing I suggest in my book is issuing bats and challenges, which is a practice that can be borrowed from the legal world. So until 1986, uh, Batson v. Kentucky, when the Supreme Court made it illegal for prosecutors to reject potential jurors based solely on race, you could do that. You could just say, I don't want a black person on the jury and kick them off. But since then, when a lawyer um, tries to reject someone for a jury from a jury uh, without a reason, 
then another lawyer, adverse counsel, can make what's called a Batson challenge. They can say, you know, I think that the, the secret motivation for you rejecting this person is race. And then the original lawyer has to defend his or her strike by proffering a non-racial reason. And so I think it's important to have more than one person reviewing for applicants to an organization and that we should train people to issue bats and challenges. So if the first person rejects a candidate and the second person says, oh, you know, I, I thought that candidate's resume looked good, I thought he interviewed well, what was your reason for the rejection? And the first person might say, well, he didn't seem conservatively groomed to me. And the second person would say, well, say more. What do you mean about conservatively groomed? And the first person might say, well, yeah, dreadlocks, you know, and we're an investment bank. I don't think that's the look that an investment banker should have. And then that second person can say, well, you know, what a professional hairstyle is cannot be bounded by the professional hairstyles traditionally worn by white people. So we're going to put him back in the applicant pool and let him do the next round of interviews. We have to train people on what's called bias interrupting. You know, we have to give them anti-bias training so that they can recognize those biases in the first place. And then I think that we have to have people in conversation with each other so that they can check each other on those issues. Mm. Oh, I really like that bias interrupting, bias interrupting. Uh, as you were sharing, Shannon, something else came up to me. I guess I had this conversation back in August, and a gentleman was saying to me, he said, sometimes I wonder if all the effort's worth it for such a mm -hmm. small group. And and he was right about the small group because this was not about color. Actually, this was about um, non-binary people who identify as non-binary. He said, it's such a small group of people. We're spending so much attention. And I said, well, to me, if, if somebody, if one person's not, doesn't feel included, then there is no belonging. And he goes, that's a good point. And he goes, I, I think that my, my views are logical, but I sometimes wonder if there's something in there. <laughs> And I said, well, I've chosen to believe there's always something in there yeah. for me. Instead of figuring out if there's something, I assume there is. And I'm curious, would that be considered kind of a, one of these practices? Because to me, it's a practice. I assume there's something in there beyond the logic. I think that is a practice. I think it's the practice of being self-reflective and of what's called cultural metacognition, which is about being aware of our own biases, our own assumptions about other people's cultures and our own, and recognizing that our thoughts may be inflected with culture. And I think the next level is not feeling unduly guilty about those ideas that come up. You know, we live in a society in which People of color are stereotyped in the media in which too often when you see a Middle Eastern person on the television screen, they're playing a terrorist, in which when we turn on the nightly news, we don't see the Sackler family who have, you know, caused the opioid epidemic on the television as the image of a drug dealer. We're more likely to see a Black person with his pants sagging. We breathe in that air every day. And so mm. when an idea that's informed by the environment that we live in pops up, that stereotype, we don't need to beat ourselves up, but we do need to root it out. And we do need to just recognize that our thoughts may be inflected by race. And so to give an example of that, 
Can you imagine um, if you're in a setting where there's a very rigorous interview process, maybe someone is applying to be an investment banker or a lawyer or to go into consulting. And part of that interview process is always going to be you're going to take the person in lunch. You're going to see their etiquette and their sawa fare and just get a sense of how they would court clients. Well, that person orders a steak and they say, I like that steak. Well done, please. And you're sitting there thinking, oh, that's passe. That's not the sophisticated way. It's the sophisticated way to order a steak. You're supposed to you know, say I want it a little medium rare or as the chef, you know, prefers or something like that. But you may not realize that in Black culture, people tend to order steaks well done. And, you know, not everyone does, but it's more of a norm. And that, in fact, it's considered polite to order a steak well done because many people consider meat that's pink to be raw, to be gross. And even if you like it that way, you wouldn't order it that way among strangers because it'd be considered impolite. Mm -hmm. And so you reject that person because you say they're unsophisticated and it never occurs to you that your rejection is formed by a racial norm. And so when you have cultural metacognition, you say, oh, I wonder if my assessment of that practice may have been informed by a race. And then, you know, you look, as you said, is there something there? And even just to go back to that broader concern about, is it enough people to care? You know, does this affect enough people to matter? I would suggest that it increasingly matters in ways we can't even expect. So, for example, in the corporate law space, there aren't that many people of color doing corporate law. And so you may say, are there really enough lawyers of color for this to matter? Well, increasingly, there are corporate clients, including Fortune 500 clients. These are predominantly white institutions that will only hire law firms that have diverse legal teams. They want to see diverse lawyers coming to the pitch. They look at the billable hours that they were charged to see of diverse lawyers at meaningful assignments on the case. They know that when they get in front of an increasingly diverse jury, that juries look and see what the demographics of the legal team are. And so when we say, oh, it just affects a few people, it actually doesn't because it affects, you know, who your clients are. It affects how a jury sees you. It has this ripple effect. And so sometimes we think it's a small issue, but it really does matter on a larger scale. Well, there's something I would love to chat with you about, Shannon. We had a guest probably, what, Craig, three or four weeks ago, David Baldwin. Yeah. And David uh, owns a marketing agency in North Carolina. But during the pandemic, uh, his firm pushed him hard to say, you know, we got to make a statement. And he said, you know, I don't want to make a statement because no one cares what we say. They care what we do. Mm -hmm. And one thing that came out of that was he helped fund, found an organization called Take Your Seat mm -hmm. that is designed to specifically create board, op, board seat opportunities for people of color. And, and the key to it is people, whites, giving up their seats mm -hmm. um, because there's a limit to the seats in some ways. I mean, there are. You got a board of, you could add five seats, but. Um, I guess my question about that is, and what really struck me is that was action mm -hmm. because it started when someone asked him to give up his seat on a board and he said, happily. And now they're trying to train people of color to be ready for those positions. Mm -hmm. um, 
would that be an example of just anti-racist action to change our outcomes? It is, and I think it's very admirable and altruistic, but I also don't want people to think that it's a zero-sum game where there's always a finite number of resources and that white people have to give something up in order for people of color to succeed. What I like to focus on is the fact that if you are a white person and you own shares of stock in a company, or if you um, even are a working class person who doesn't own any stock, but your pension is invested in a company, if that company is more diverse, which we know is consistent with it being more profitable, then you as a white person benefit. And so I think that we need to focus on how white people benefit from diversity and instead of focusing too much on how uh, white people in some contexts, you know, those limited contexts where there are just so many board seats have to give up something for diversity. A rising tide really does lift all boats. I think that it would also be appropriate to say when the next board seat comes up, you know, we're not going to ask anyone to, to give up a board seat, but when the next one comes up, diversity is going to be a factor in filling that seat. Or even to say, what practices can we change that keep people of color out of these seats? So one of them is the notion of get, give, get off. Too often to be on a board, you're required to get donations from other people or give a certain amount yourself or you're expected to get off the board. Well, again, in a society with a wealth gap, you may not have the money to give that a white board member does. In fact, it's unlikely that you do have the same wealth that a white person does. And again, because of de facto segregation, you probably know other people of color. They also suffer from the wealth gap. They're unlikely to have money to give to you to fundraise. And so what if we look for other skills? What if we say, you know, expertise matters? If someone can give their expertise, we're not going to just look at how much money they can bring in. And so it's, you know, changing those practices, as you said, looking at is something there, is something there that might be inflected with race that isn't just obvious? And how can we diversify things that way? Wow, that is such a good point. I I mean, I know of boards, I'm not on any of them, for reasons will become obvious, where they have minimum donations that are very large amounts. And I thought about it, I said, by having that, you change the pool based on color. And there's a gentleman here in Tampa, a very successful business owner, and he was telling me he said, Jeff, I get like, I get a board request a week. And I often feel like I'm the only successful black man. Because I know they're asking me in part because of my color. Mm. And there's not enough others. And it just struck me that how much of that is just so absolutely true. If you keep the same standards, right. Mm. And I think, to me, that's one of the things that terrifies people. I, I saw an article this summer here in Tampa, you know, it was the 100 most powerful people in Tampa Bay. And before I opened it, I I prejudged it. I said, okay, here it comes. It's going to be filled with white guys. And it was, you know, and they talked in the article about how they wanted more diversity and they're doing their best. And I wrote a letter to the editor and I said, you're not going to change those pictures until you change the rules. Because your definition basically says in our culture, white business owners, white male business owners. That's what the definition says. 
without saying that. Um, so I'm curious how much of this is about companies rewriting, basically rewriting their standards, not to lower them, but rewrite them because they're already tainted. Oh, absolutely. I can look at one wonderful thing our law firm does, which is give a certain amount of billable hour credit for diversity efforts. And what I mean by that is when you're a lawyer, the work that you do directly for a client is most valued. That work is billed by the hour. And that's what determines getting promoted to partner. That's what determines the bonus that you get at the end of the year. But not all your work is billable work. You're expected to do work that's related to being a good firm citizen. You're supposed to do work that's related to diversity and equity and inclusion. But the problem is there are only 24 hours in a day. And so if I take an hour and I write a law review article on civil rights, and that article goes viral and the firm is in its social media saying, look at our lawyer writing this wonderful civil rights piece where I'm going out and um, giving know your rights talks to the black middle schoolers at a local school. I'm doing these things where the law firm is looking great. Clients are coming to the law firm saying, yeah, we wanna do our business with you because you have all these diversity efforts. But meanwhile, all those hours I'm spending on those things, I'm not billing clients. So I'm actually being penalized. Like the law firm is being reward, rewarded. I'm being penalized. Those hours don't count towards my bonus. Someone else is that much closer to making partner. That's what it's like at a typical all model law firm. Now, at my law firm, I actually can get billable hour credit for a certain amount of diversity efforts. So I'm not being punished when I take that on. And it shows that that's what the firm rewards. That's what the firm thinks is valuable. So as you said, you know, people have to change what they think of power looking like. They have to change what they think of important legal work looking like. They have to change what they think it means to be a good lawyer, it looks like. We have to diversify not just the people that we bring into an organization, but what we value. And then we have to put our money where our mouth is, literally. And if we value things, reward them like we value them. I love that point, Shannon. And one thing that I heard in that you've talked a lot, you've used the term back and forth. You've talked to diversity, equity, inclusion, and you've talked a little less actually about the phrase or concept of anti-racism. So share with us and our listeners, what do you see as a difference between having a diversity, equity, inclusion initiative, call it that, and an anti-racism initiative within your organization? Sure. So I can remember uh, being at our firm's annual meeting and when we bring people from all the different offices together in one place and we talk about the future of the firm. And we're very proud of being a Mansfield certified firm, which means that for senior positions, we make sure that a certain proportion of the people that we interview are either female or that people of color, that they're diverse candidates. And I just very candidly raised my hand and said, so is anyone checking to make sure that this means diversity along all the axes? Or does it mean that if all the candidates are white women, we can check that box? And our firm leadership was, you know, very powerful and said, no, we are also looking for racial diversity. 
but it raises the point that you can be very diverse and not be anti-racist. You can have a white deaf person sitting at the table next to a white woman, next to, you know, a white person who is a veteran of the army. You know, there's a lot of diversity just within whiteness. And all that diversity is great. We should have people with disabilities and people of different genders at the table. But we also have to be anti-racist. And we have to remember that women come in all colors, disabled people come in all colors. It's not a choice between the different types of diversity. And so being anti-racist means that it's not enough for, you know, the woman I talked about earlier, who's a senior leader of the firm as a woman to have this role and be accepted as a lawyer. It also has to mean that I, as a woman of color, don't get mistaken for the secretary. It's all those things together. And then also diversity, equity, and inclusion aren't the same thing. So the schools, uh, the school I attended from kindergarten to 12th grade was very diverse in its hiring. They had a lot of black employees. They had a lot of Hispanic employees. They had a lot of white employees. It wasn't equitable in its hiring. When I was in kindergarten, I literally thought there was a rule that when a white person applied for a job at the school that they would get told, well, since you're white, you can be a teacher, you can be a principal, or you can be the headmaster. And that when a Black or Hispanic person got applied for a job, they were told, oh, you're a person of color, so you can choose between cafeteria worker and janitor. I literally thought that was the policy. So we had diverse hiring. They didn't have equitable hiring. But then since then, they've actually had a Black principal. So that's when you start getting to equity. But once you have equity, you have to make sure that there's inclusion. So does that Black investment banker also get invited to go out golfing with the senior leaders and learn the ropes of how to get clients? You know, does that Muslim lawyer get accommodated when he can't drink because of, you know, it's mm-hmm. it's forbidden by Islam when everyone else goes out to happy hour? Does someone say, you know what, we, we go get coffee sometimes and then all of us can do that. That's the inclusion piece. And so anti-racism, diversity, equity, inclusion, they're not just superfluous terms for the same things. They're all different things and we need all of them. Well, it sounds like we, we need to really have a conversation with each person so that we understand where their preferences lie. And, you know, I may not know that the, the person is Muslim, therefore I don't know that they may not be able to drink, you know, whatever those things are, there are so many things that are hidden to us. And it really comes back back to asking rather than assuming. Do you have a process for that? Is or is that just being a, a decent person and just asking the person about where they are and, and what their preferences are? So part of it is not expecting ourselves and our organizations to be omniscient. It's not about stereotyping people and saying, oh, well, right. he has an, an Arabic last name. He must yeah, be a right. Muslim. And, and even, oh, well, he's a Muslim, so he definitely doesn't drink. You know, some Muslims drink, some Jews don't keep kosher. You can't yeah. stereotype. But you can have a culture of openness where we say, you know, if something isn't accessible to you, let us know. Maybe we don't realize that we've been dragging our feet on getting the elevator repaired and we just assume everyone can go up the stairs. And, you know, Joe is elderly and he is actually having trouble going up the stairs and he hasn't wanted to say anything because he doesn't want to look, you know, out of touch and irrelevant. But 
he could use some help. He needs a way to just be able to put his hand up, even anonymously, and say, actually, this is a disability issue. We need to get this fixed. Or just, um, you know, Muhammad needs a way to say, I can't participate in the happy hour. I know no one is trying to exclude me. I know you're trying to foster just this culture of camaraderie. But hey, can we do something here? So just letting people know that HR is available to them and that they can, you know, put their hands up and speak to their experiences. But also, you can do an audit. Our own firm, as I said, did this in the wake of George Floyd's murder. I think it's a very brave thing for them to have done where you gather people, you want as many as possible because the larger the sample size, the better the data. Mm -hmm. You can decide, you know, it's going to be for the purposes of this audit, all the people of color or as it was in the wake of the George Floyd murder, you know, all the black associates, whoever you feel is the relevant group. And you're going to sit down with people. And the way you're going to do this is first, you're going to ask them indirectly, like over email, so that if they want to say no, they can say no awkwardly. You're going to do it during the workday because when people are advising you on how to help your organization, mm -hmm. that is work they have to be compensated for. You don't put it on people of color to stay late or come early to fix your organization any more than you would ask people to paint the lunchroom for free. You're going to do it either one-on-one -on -one or in a group with an outside moderator so that you make it safe for people to be candid. And then you're going to allot enough time. If it's one-on-one, -on -one, about an hour. If it's a group of people, about two and a half hours. And you don't have to feel like, I don't know what to say. You're there to listen. And so conducting an audit like that can give people the space to say, I'm getting mistaken for the secretary. I can't make it up the stairs every day. That's not doable for me. It's against my faith to go to the happy hour. Create those spaces where people can be candid. Gotcha. Wow. Well, I really love that. Thank you. I think the thing that came up as you were sharing that, Shannon, is what is the shift that I need to make as a leader and other leaders need to make that people feel safe to have that? And for me, I think I've got to show something versus expect them to trust me. I think yeah. I need to go into this saying, look, they have reasons to be afraid, even though I don't like that. Mm -hmm. I don't want to admit that. But to approach it from a conversation with someone who I assume probably has some hesitation versus, hey, just share what you need to share. Yeah, it, it almost sounds like we're not going far enough if we just put it on their shoulders to tell us about it rather than us actually asking for it. So I, I really liked your your approach to getting getting that moderated group in there and would you say that the that leadership should or should not be in that room at that point should should the third party create a sanitized list so i think that there are pros and cons to both okay. sometimes people bring in diversity experts or uh, trained facilitators and they don't have leadership in the room and that can allow people to speak more candidly. Hmm. Sometimes people can't afford that. And if you can't, don't feel that you shouldn't do it. It's still better to have the audit anyways. Yeah. But also having leadership in the room for certain conversations can be valuable because it shows, first of all, that leadership values these conversations and wants to hear people's voices. But also because leaders are often the people who have a formal power to make institutional change. 
And so I know that when I met with the woman who was a senior leader at our firm and I could see her make changes based upon the conversations that we had, it showed how committed the firm was to being even more diverse and equitable and inclusive. So there are benefits either way. Okay. So Shannon, it seems to me, I guess, to wrap this point up and somehow we always get here that what you just described is vulnerability. Leaders need to be vulnerable and acknowledge what they don't know, acknowledge their mistakes, and take that, you know, let's face it, it might be scary to admit the times that they've had those biases and they've made assumptions, the stuff they don't want anybody to know that I don't want people to know. But the more I'm willing to share that, I think sends a message that I'm working to get better. Uh, Who was our guest, Craig? Uh, Jana had that saying, no better, do better. <laughs> and uh, I think leadership is a lot about, yeah, know better, but then show that you're going to do better with knowing better. Right. So I love this. I love, it's been a different, a different perspective that I knew it would be um, a really a rich, deep exploration of a challenging topic. And there's so many obstacles to this change. And my hope is that we can all collectively just show up a little different every day mm. to be a part of making that difference. Um, Cause I guess I believe that's, what's going to, it's going to take small acts to, you know, to break down these, these infrastructures. I but don't know that a wrecking ball is going to come through. Yeah. yeah. It does need to be intentional. So thank you, Shannon. Thanks for all you brought with us today. We always want our guests to have a chance to, promote or highlight something in particular that's going on with them. So what is that for you? Well, I do have my book coming out, Tactics for Racial Justice, Building an Anti-Racist Organization and Community. It's part of the Giving Voice to Values line published by Rutledge. And the foreword is by Susan Neiman, who wrote Learning from the Germans, Race and the Memory of Evil. And it's just as the title says, a book of tactics. And so if you want to learn concrete skills that anyone can use of any background, any walk of life to make a significant impact on the cause of racial justice, that's who I wrote it for. Okay. So is that book already out? It comes out in January of next year. Okay. All right. January 22. And what's the best way for people to connect with you, Shannon? Sure. So uh, probably on LinkedIn at uh, Shannon Prince. And then I also have a page on my firm's website and my firm um, is Boy Schiller Flexner. Well, we'll put all that in the notes. Um, We always wrap up with a couple questions. So my questions for you, Shannon, is what's that we talked about, you've shared a lot of Thoughts and wisdom today. What's that one piece of wisdom for folks to take away from this conversation? I like to tell people to think like an ancestor. And by that, I mean, is when we think of ourselves only as the descendants of those who came before or Mm. only as the current denizens of the earth, then the world we make for those who follow us is just a byproduct of our activities But when we think in the mode of being an ancestor of those to come, we're cognizant that we are inextricably involved in the process of shaping the world. And so it's, you know, as Craig said, it's about being intentional. We have to recognize that those small decisions that we make are 
part of the process of world crafting and that world crafting is a privilege and it's something that we should adopt as a priority. And so what I ask people to do when it comes to racial justice is not just ask yourself at when you go to bed at night, was today productive? Ask yourself, was tomorrow impacted? Wow, I love that term world crafting. Yes, I heard that one too. And all that's and all the richness that's inside of that and and thinking about things from the ancestors perspective. But that that comes back to so many different aspects of, you know, treating people well, but also treating our environment and and, you know, sustainable efforts and things like that as well. You know, what are we going to leave our kids? Right. Yeah, I love that. So, Shannon, uh, our, our last question for you is. Tell us about that leadership model. Who, who was that for you and why were they such a significant model for you? So I've been privileged to have a lot of leaders in my life who have been role models for me. And one of them is Tal Porshawn Lynch, who until her passing in, 2009, in 2020 was the oldest living yoga teacher, according to the Guinness Book of World Records, and also the oldest competitive ballroom dancer. And she was my teacher, as well as my mentor and friend. And she taught me so many things from her extraordinary life. Yoga and ballroom dancing were probably the least parts of it. She (laughs) marched with Gandhi and Martin Luther King. In between, she rescued Jews from the Nazis. And when I look back on the things she shared with me, when she marched with Gandhi, she was just a little girl. When she was rescuing Jews during the Holocaust, that was uh, when she was just a young woman. I mean, she hadn't even hit her mid-20s. And I think that so often we can think we're not qualified to be leaders. We're too young. We don't have the credentials. When she um, marched with Martin Luther King, she was an immigrant to this country. She grew up in India and then she lived in France and didn't really understand the legacy of anti-Black racism. She hadn't mastered the issues, but that didn't keep her on the sidelines. And so I think that instead of thinking we don't know enough or even we're not yet enough, we have to amass some more credentials or we need to get some more followers. All being a leader is, is showing up and serving. And that's one of the many things she taught me. That was so good. What it sounds like an amazing role model. She was, yes. Well, I just found her page. Yeah. Lived to be 101. Yes. 101 years of service, it sounds like. That's a pretty damn good life. (laughs) Well, thank you, Shannon. Thanks for being here. And, And more importantly, thanks for the work you're doing in the world, because it certainly matters. Well, thank you so much for having this conversation with me, for being both brave and vulnerable in your interactions. I really appreciate it. If you enjoyed this episode, please go to your favorite podcasting app, rate us, give us some comments, share some love. It helps us to get our message out to more people. Thank you so much. If you enjoy the Leadership Junkies podcast and you want to grow your leadership, we have a new course for you called Become a Confident Leader. In this course, we will share some of the keys to becoming more confident in your leadership and also to become more impactful. Go to cartavera.com confident to find out more. See you on the inside.
Welcome, change agents, to your go-to place for stories that ignite your spirit, fuel your purpose, and connect us all. We believe in the incredible power of the human spirit, its boundless resilience, and the inspiration it brings to our lives. On the Driving Change podcast, we'll journey together through the extraordinary, yet very relatable experiences of some of the most amazing people on earth. Our mission? That through these stories, we might just spark change within you and awaken a newfound motivation to harness your unique gifts to make a real difference in the world. So get ready to be inspired and join us on this incredible adventure. You can find the Driving Change Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you love listening to your favorite podcasts.